You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, if you're looking to join a community of like-minded individuals who love the outdoors, then you need to check out the Go Wild app. And you can find it anywhere apps or are downloaded, or you can check out their website, timetogowild.com. Now, what is Go Wild? Go Wild is an app. It's a social media app where people can share their hunting, their fishing, their outdoor adventures through posts and pictures and log time and all that kind of generates this score and this score is almost like an overall score of how your quote-unquote adventure went it's a pretty cool pretty interesting uh, concept and i think you guys should all check it out so visit timetogowild.com or download this app wherever you currently download your apps it's time to go wild Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So we can probably jump right off then with with just, you know, pretty much as soon as I came down and just talk about kind of the terrain and the habitat. And, you know, I, it was kind of funny. One of the YouTube comments that I got, a guy was like, he's like, why did you pick that area? He's like, even the Missourians don't go to areas like that when they want to hunt deer. <laughs> yeah i mean to me that's that's a good thing to kind of kind of talk about is you know why i mean obviously that area we picked because i live there close but right you know the habitat's so different you know how did how did we determine where we were going to hunt right because it's so you use the word monoculture which i think describes a lot of that area that was around there pretty well I mean, when you talk about, even like when people throw around the word big woods, you know, or, or, you know, big timber, things like that, even like in Northern Minnesota, where I'm more familiar with what we would call big woods has more varied, um, habitat than what you guys had down in Missouri. You know, we'll have kind of that same type of rolling hill mixed hardwood forest, but then there's lowland swamps that kind of break it up. So it is a little bit more easy to find transitions just from one habitat type to the other. Whereas a lot of that stuff we were looking at down there, it was like, for the most part, unless you had private land with some, some open areas, it was pretty much the same everywhere you looked, unless you had like a Creek bottom where you had a little bit more cedars or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's interesting when you look at it from that aspect on you know how it is it's basically a mixed hardwood forest so that has oaks hickories it's just a mix of hardwood forest but 90 percent of it is all that way like you said you do get some creek bottoms or you may run into small areas of pines where the forest service has planted pines on the mark twain but for the most part it's that monocultured you know style habitat so it's one particular habitat for a long ways of a mixed hardwood forest and the other thing that I noticed was that it seemed like the understory in general, I mean, there were some thick areas, but for the most part, I felt like the understory there was very open compared to the hardwoods that we have around here. You know, like walking with any kind of like, you know, climbing sticks hanging off to the side or, you know, exposed steps or anything. It didn't really matter. It was like, you could pretty much, you could see a long ways when you're on the ground level and you know it was easy walking for the most part i didn't really have to worry about you know getting caught up and stuff 
you know, if you were anywhere other than a creek bottom, it was like it was pretty open. Is that pretty pretty common for all that type of land? Yeah, that's extremely common. I mean, basically that browse anything below six feet for the most part because it's a closed canopy forest um, during the summers. There's no light getting to the ground floor, so there's nothing down there that's growing. So unless you find an area that maybe was burned or had a tornado come through and knock down some treetops and stuff like that, that's the way it is for most all of that is like six foot and below. It's pretty wide open. You may have a few small saplings here and there, but you have no issues of like Greenbrier or Smilax or anything like that that you have to worry about getting tangled up in. Yeah. So it makes it dip, it makes it difficult for deer to browse on, you know, woody shrubs in that area because there's not a whole lot of them. You know, they are pretty hard on acorns when the acorns are falling. Yeah. So there was a lot of acorns everywhere, pretty much all elevations. It seemed like. But when the acorns aren't on the ground, what are those deer eating? Yeah, you know, they travel a long ways for the most part to get to some of these, you know, hay pastures, agricultural fields, um, or into the creek bottoms where there is some stuff where they can browse on, um, like smilax and things like that that they can get into. But a lot of times in those, you know, upland um, mixed hardwood forests, you know, there's really not much up there for them to browse on. They may bed and travel through there, but they're going long distance to find some forage somewhere else. So would it be safe to assume that if you were going to hunt there early season, you'd probably try and find areas, you know, if you were confined to the public land areas, you would try and focus on stuff that is closer to, to private land hay fields and stuff like that? Yeah, or try to find um, some areas where there is, you know, some understory browse. Um, because like you said, there's there's not much of it out there whatsoever. So if you can find an area like that, that has it on public land, the deer are going to be there. They will be coming to that spot because it's very rare to find in there. And so obviously browse and acorns and things like that are natural for those deer to feed on. But does that compare to areas where deer have, you know, access to alfalfa or corn or, or what have you, soybeans, does that have a big impact on the nutrition that the deer are able to get? And does that affect you know, fawning or antler growth or anything like that, do you think? Um, I mean, to a degree, obviously it would if they're a little more stressed in these, you know, closed canopy forests where there's not a whole lot of forage, but they will have to travel farther. So obviously, you know, if I remember right, uh, the doe I killed didn't have hardly any fat on her and none of the deer that was killed during the time there um, that I seen had any fat on them whatsoever. I mean, most of the time you're pulling you know, three quarters of an inch of fat or half inch of fat off the back of the deer this time of year. Um, but most of the deer were pretty slim pickings, but there was a lot of acorns that were falling and still falling even while we were there. Yeah. I mean, the acorns up here in Minnesota, they're, they've been pretty much done falling for several weeks, you know, prior to when I came down and then I come down there and there's acorns all over the place. Yeah, I mean, they were even still falling um, while we were hunting. I mean, the deer, you know, they just were still browsing on acorns. Um, you know, my family, we've got a couple food plots there, and normally we plant winter wheat, and by the opening weekend of rifle season, which was this past weekend, they've got the winter wheat mowed down to about an inch tall, and it's probably still eight inches tall, nine inches tall. They haven't even hit the winter wheat yet, which is extremely rare. So then... Once that happens, though, they'll probably hit it even harder, I would imagine, because it'll coincide yeah. closer to when you guys start maybe getting some snowfall. And Yeah, they've got a they got a little bit of snow a couple of days ago, and that'll probably really turn the deer. It'll snap them onto the food plots um, where they'll be in that winter wheat kicking it up, trying to eat it over, you know, foraging around trying to find acorns underneath the snow and underneath the leaves. Gotcha. Yeah, I finished processing that, that buck that I shot, and, I mean, for the most part, all the same cuts that I chose to get ground on my last year, that doe, I did the same with the buck. So I, I kept the same roast, kept the back straps, tenderloins, all that stuff, and everything else was just uh, basically grind meat that I was going to get some sticks made from and, and also just get the, the straight ground meat. And we even lost some of the meat with that, uh, that abscess or whatever that we found. And I still had yeah. probably 30% more weight in venison with that buck than I did the doe. And I don't think the dressed weight between those two deer were too significantly different. But the big difference was whatever weight that that buck had 
it was pretty much all muscle, whereas that doe, I think, she wouldn't have been quite as heavy, but she had a lot more fat on her. Yeah, she had, you know, that much more fat being, you know, further north compared to, like we said, that buck, when we skinned it, it had absolutely no fat on it. Um, you know, I don't remember cutting off a chunk of fat anywhere when we when we processed that deer up or when we cut it up. I don't remember seeing any. Yeah, I mean, it made it really nice to be able to to process that meat. You could see where all the, the muscle transitions are. It made quick work of that, breaking up those hindquarters. Yeah, it makes it pretty easy. So then <clears throat> I remember thinking, you know, when we first came in that initial morning, so not necessarily even the first night when we went out and hunted, but that first morning when we kind of went along that dry creek bottom, along those, those rocks and, and set up, and then once I started moving so that, you know, right when that rain was just about getting ready to fall, I started walking up that first ridge and it was not that steep. And I remember seeing just like a scrape and a rub and thinking like, what's so special about this spot? And then you would walk a little bit further and you'd see some tracks and stuff. And it was like, like how on earth it just seemed so random. The first, the first couple pieces of deer sign that I was seeing I couldn't make any rhyme or reason as to why it was where it was. And I remember thinking like, man, it's, you know, when people always complain about big woods or say big woods is tough, it's like, yeah, for sure. Like it, especially if you don't have any rut sign to go off of, like, it just seems like it could be random. It seems like it could be anywhere at any time type of thing. Um, and then once we started scouting more and more, then it started to become apparent. Okay. There's some, there's some pattern here as to where, you know, what elevation the sign's being made. Um, you could, you could almost kind of piece together. I don't know if you saw the video that I posted yet, but I put some, some example topos on that of, of kind of all the, the rut sign that we were seeing when we were doing that scouting. And when you look at the big picture, it all, it all kind of starts to make sense. But to somebody who's just going out there and you see a couple pieces of sign, it does seem very random at times. Yeah. I mean, it took a lot of in-depth looking at the sign, you know, we both, so basically what it was, was it was about a 500-acre piece of Mark Twain National Forest. And it's pretty much landlocked. There's private land all around it, but there is an old access point to this um, to this piece of government that most people don't know about. Really, only the locals know about it. My dad's hunted back there f- since I was a kid. So that's kind of where we went. And well, like you said, once we get in there, <clears throat> you really have to look in depth at what sign was there because like you said there's not a whole lot of steep terrain changes um, really good saddles or anything like that that's going to funnel deer movement so when you look at it big picture it looked random but as we scouted more and we started comparing notes so basically every night after we got home we'd look at each other's phone and share waypoints and you know we had trails marked that okay, I saw a deer trail cutting this ridge, I saw a rub here, and we started looking at all that accumulative and really started picking apart, we did start to find patterns to that. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, 500 acres that we were looking at that was that was mostly landlocked, but you expand your search by, you know, a half mile, and you all of, all of a sudden have access to another, you know, 5,000 acres, and then you, ex- yeah. you expand your radius a little bit. There's just a lot of a lot of public land in that area and there's definitely some some private land scattered around but i definitely liked the fact that the stuff that we were hunting it ju- definitely seemed like we were able to weed out some of the the other hunter pressure there which i think was nice yeah and also you know we did scout some other areas around there but just the amount of sign that we've seen in those other areas compared to that 500 acre block was i mean there was just so much more on that 500 acre block compared to the other areas that we scouted and looked at and so that's kind of what just kept keeping us keying in on that area. Was obviously, there was sign there. Now we just got to put it together and figure out where they're moving and why they're moving there. Yeah, and the other stuff that we scouted, I remember looking at the map and thinking, I like that better <laughs> you know, than the stuff that we scouted. I was like, it's steeper. That's going to funnel deer movement more. Um, you know, you had, you had private land that was close. It just seemed like it was going to be better. And then we get back there, and it was like the first spot was, was clearly, you know, not logged, but it was – it was burned. It was wide open. We can maybe talk about that a little bit more too. And then the other spots that we looked at and scouted, it was like, it looked good. It looked like it should be good, but there just wasn't the sign there. And I was like, okay, well now that we've gone and checked out these other couple of spots, I kind of do like, you know, the initial spot, even though 
it was a little bit harder to pinpoint that deer movement. Yeah, it was going to be, we had a higher chance of killing deer in the spot where you ended up killing yours, but it was going to take probably more work to find and get on those deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more more work maybe to um, to have one that you actually see that's within killing range. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the other places we scouted, we scouted one area that they had basically went in and trying to restore like an oak savanna. So they left just a few large trees. They went in and cut basically most everything in the understory and all the other trees and then run a fire through it and burned it. Uh, so you could easily see 300 yards probably, even though it was you know a mostly closed canopy but there was a lot of treetops that weren't completely burnt on the ground and things like that. And it was much steeper. There was a little bit more terrain funnels in there. But like Garrett said, once we got in there and started looking at it, it just, it would have been so hard to get on a deer and get a deer within 30 yards that it was, you know, we didn't hardly see much sign in there anyways, but right. it would have been extremely difficult to get that done in that wide open area. And we, we jumped those couple of does, but it was like those, those deer that we did jump. It was like, that was the only kind of area that we found that even had any kind of understory at all. Yeah. And then the second area we went and scouted out was kind of an overgrown Creek bottom. It's a really good rabbit hunting spot. Um, so there's, you know, kind of a cedar thicket, um, a Creek bottom, some, you know, mixed hardwoods, mostly, uh, walnuts, things like that lower that butted up against a, a pine stand up on the ridge that was probably, I don't know, 200 feet above us basically. Um, so there was one point where the creek and that pine stand, the basically the bluff that went up to the pine stand just funneled together and you would have thought every deer that had to walk through that area would have walked right through there. And we seen a trail, but there, we didn't see any fresh sign on it. We didn't see any scrapes, any rubs, anything like that around there. Yeah, and that was one of those spots, too, where I looked at it and I was like, I thought for sure we were going to find something good, and it just it just wasn't there. And so, obviously, we defaulted back to this this piece of property that was, you know, there was sign. There was sign scattered everywhere, basically, and it's like, okay, now how do we figure out where we're going to catch these deer and what features are we going to use to our advantage on these deer. And obviously, you know, it's this mixed hardwood forest. There was uh, two small pieces of pines in there, um, pine stands that were in there that created a little bit of an edge, but it wasn't really necessarily enough to guide the deer in those areas. Right. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the pines were way thicker or anything like that. There was still kind of that open understory within both of those, those tree types. Exactly. So looking at that from, what you know when you looked at the map what were you starting to key in on what were you starting to look at to determine where you were going to hunt well so i was kind of looking for like inside corners right because if i'm looking at a piece of hill country i'm thinking i'm looking for funnels i look for you know dramatic saddles which if there's any there i'll I'll just go and check them out just because it's usually not that many so they're pretty quick to to go and take a look Uh, but then ravines that are steep that have that have some kind of location where a deer has to cross around. That's kind of the stuff I like to look at for hard terrain funnels, and then the ones that are good, whichever ones are on a leeward side. Those are the ones I like to try and really focus on. <clears throat> so that was the thing is when I started looking at that stuff, it was like none of those ravines were all that steep, and you know a lot of the ravines up here sometimes you get them where it's just full of deadfall, and it just creates an additional obstacle for the deer to want to cross at a certain elevation on to get from one point to another. So the way I kind of looked at that spot we were on, it was kind of like you had that main, you know, primary ridge that, you know, had that sort of old logging road on it. That thing stretched, you know, a big long length. And if you look at this, this uh, primary ridge on the top of map, it's almost shaped kind of like an oak leaf where you got, you know, kind of that main stem is your primary ridge. And then you have a bunch of little secondary lobes you know, coming off that main ridge, kind of the shape of that, that, uh, overall topography. So then I would say, okay, like I remember look like walking up that log, old logging road and I saw, um, one rub 
maybe like a hundred yards off. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go and check out some of these secondary ridges and just, just see if I can cut across the top end and see if I can see anything that might be steep enough or whatever. And it was like, there wasn't anything that was really that, that hard of a, a transition, but you could definitely tell that where some of those, you know, inside corners, so to speak, between those lobes of the oak leaf, you know, so to speak on the topo map, where they would be shaped like bowls, where, you know, your secondary ridges would be like your points. And then between those two points, there'd be kind of like a little bowl. You'd be able to tell where there was sort of a, a difference in steepness of that hill where the bowl was kind of steep. And then as soon as you hit the top end of that bowl, it was kind of flat. And that's where I would, that was kind of the elevation where I saw most of the rubs. I mean, to the point where more times than not, if I was on one of the corners of those secondary ridges, you'd be able to see a rub or two. Um, and that one point that the one that you ended up sitting on that thing, I'm sure you saw them too. There's that one rub on one corner was, was pretty good size. And on the other corner of it, there was another rub that was not as big of a diameter, but it was fairly high up on the tree. And that secondary point was small enough that if you sat in the middle of it, you could pretty much almost cover both of those corners. So if you had a deer crossing at the elevation where the rubs were at, you could cover that elevation and then if a deer came up or down that point right along the the spine of that little ridge you'd be able to cover that too so those are kind of the stuff that you know after we did that initial scouting trip those are the things i was thinking maybe i can start to key on on some of the key in on some of these things yeah it seemed like once we started you know going through and marking all the rubs on onyx and then sitting down in the evenings and comparing where all the rubs were showing up. That's when we really started to put together that that idea of, you know, they're using these secondary ridges, whether they're coming up them or cutting just across the top of them, um, you know, kind of off the main ridge. And that's when we really started to put that together and start to develop a, a decent game plan where we really started to consistently see deer. I mean, we hunted a few places early in the week just, you know, based off of other things and, and seen deer at distance, but it wasn't until we really started focusing in on that, the scouting that we'd really put in and the terrain features that we'd pulled from Onyx that we really got close encounters on deer. Yeah. And <clears throat> the other place that I kind of, I think it would have been interesting to spend more time in, and we never really got the chance to, was in some of those creek bottoms where it was a little bit thicker <clears throat> because... I think some of those areas just from, you know, the way that we know that, that those thermals can work in that type of terrain, they give you pretty good advantage from, you know, a deer's perspective of being able to smell everything that's up above them and around them, um, when those thermals are dropping and some of those, you know, kind of lower convergence areas where you got a couple of those little drainages meeting in one spot. So you'd have maybe like say a fork in the Creek and then you got, you know, two or three of those primary ridges all kind of meeting in one little low area and you could have all that wind kind of pooling. So it'd be super hard to hunt is the downside, but there'd be some decent rubs and stuff in areas like that, that I think if you were able to figure out a way to, to hunt it effectively, I'd be interested to see if how often those deer come into those areas, but definitely going up in the tops, up in the, the higher elevations, I think it makes it a little bit cleaner to, to do an access and actually um, get away with the hunt during the day for the wind. Yeah, I know. I kind of thought the same thing early in the week, and that's why I dove into the creek bottoms uh, two days, I guess. I hunted out of that creek bottom for two days. Just because, like I said, it was because it was so much thicker than everything around it. You know, I felt like the deer would have more security in that creek bottom. You know, being able to not only have the cover around them, but being able to use the thermals to their advantage, especially when they settle into that valley and be in that creek bottom to be able to smell anything that might be around them. And, you know, I sat there two days. I didn't see, I didn't see a deer in the creek bottoms. Pretty much all the deer I ended up seeing were up out of the creek bottom. Yeah. And so it makes you wonder, cause there's definitely sign down there. It's like, did you not see anything down there because the wind was less to your advantage than you might've thought it was. And, you know, the deer were avoiding your, your area because they could, they knew something was down there or are they just using those areas at night? Yeah, I'm not sure. I know we slipped, me and my dad slipped back in there. Um, I guess it was after opening day of firearm season, so it would have been Monday, I guess. So we slipped in there on Monday, 
and cruised back in there to some of the areas that we were in and there was there was probably twice as much sign in the creek bottoms on Monday than when we were in there and hunted it middle of the week. So I don't know if the bucks just kind of waited till they started cruising and were cruising those creek bottoms for that reason that and, you know they were basically using the thermals to help them scent check any doe that might be around um, in the hills you know having all that air settle into that bottom mm-hmm. but there was just the trails were more beat there was a lot more scrapes and rubs in the bottom of the creek um, in that thicker habitat and you know it, it was crazy to see that just over you know a three to four day period the sign doubled in there and you know that's saying a lot because there was a fair amount of sign in there to begin with yeah, for sure. I mean, if it was like a a type of scenario where you could leave up stands, I'd have like a a creek bottom stand and like a, a hill stand, you know, where it's like ideally I'd be able to sneak in before first light, hunt that creek stand, and then as soon as the sun starts hitting the valley floor, then you, you, you know, climb down and cruise up to your other spot for the rest yeah. of the day. But it makes it a little bit tougher when you got to hang and hunt every every spot and every tree. Yeah, it makes it a little more difficult. Although that being so, said, when, when I did shoot my buck, it was close enough to, you know, last light where stuff was starting to get shaded. Like the thermals were probably dropping by that point. I didn't actually check. There wasn't enough wind to really be able to feel what it was doing, but I bet if I would have thrown milkweed out, I would have seen it going downhill. Yeah, but luckily for you, you know, where you ended up setting up on that deer you know, you had that kind of big drop off right there that, you know, really nothing probably uses or utilizes. So, you know, any thermal is going to carry your scent down to that pocket down there where, you know, you're more likely not going to have a deer wind you from there. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's like, why would a deer have a reason to go in that little bowl? It's like not much. They're going to be going around it. Yes. So talk a little bit about your setup and what made you choose that particular area that you ended up choosing that you ended up killing your deer in? Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about all these kind of secondary ridges and and the bowls between them and the inside corners and stuff like that. Well, I was just kind of bouncing along all of these, these secondary ridges, um, looking for, I started on the, the North side of the primary ridge because we had a South wind that day. So I was saying, okay, I'll be on the leeward side of this primary ridge and check all the secondary ridges on that end of it. And I was, looked at my phone. I was like, well, tomorrow we're going to have a kind of a northwest wind and then the day after a north wind. I was like, I better, it's like, well, it's going to rain today. We'll probably lose most of the day to just scouting. I was like, I might as well check the stuff on the other side of this primary ridge just in case. So I started looking at those ridges too. And I was, again, seeing a couple of those rubs and just kind of the same types of elevation, same type of scenario. And then I got to one of those those secondary points where it was a very thin defined point that ended up leading down to that creek bottom and then it was just a really steep drop off and I remember thinking like wow this is the, by far the the steepest piece of terrain that I've seen anywhere out here you know you could actually see the bare rock on the the ledges it was vertical in some areas and it wasn't I mean super deep maybe what 40 feet of yeah a, probably about 40 feet 40 foot of a sheer drop but I mean that's enough of a a terrain drop that nothing's going to walk across that Right. So if anything's going through there, it's going to be up on top of that, that ridge. And I, I started looking immediately for science, started looking for tracks, started looking for rubs. And I honestly didn't even really see anything that I could tell that was cutting around there. And since it had rained a couple of days prior, you could tell where some of the tracks were in the leaves. If a deer walked through, you could tell that it had walked through because there'd be leaves kicked up and impressions in the leaves and there was nothing there. So I'm like, okay, well, either one, this place doesn't get used, which I think it should be getting used. Um, or two, just nothing has walked through here really since that last rainfall, like the day prior. So then that was kind of my back pocket spot because I was thinking in my mind at that point that I liked that first area that had all those, those giant rubs in it. And then it wasn't really until we got back to the house and I started thinking it over a little bit more and we were going to have that Northwest wind. And I was like, you know what? Like, at least with the that spot above that sinkhole, like at least if something comes through there, it'll be within shooting range most likely. So I was like, I just, I just got to do it, you know. And I'm like I can go to the other spot the day after, um, or we can find some other spot to sit. But I just couldn't let it, I couldn't let that part of it that uh, 
the the aspect that it chokes deer movement down so much, I couldn't just let that go by. So I just had to hunt it. Yeah, and I mean, just for that area, that particular terrain feature really choked deer down. You know, when you look at the whole area, yeah, you see saddles and stuff, but they're just they're not enough defined feature there to make a deer want to walk all the way over to that saddle to cross. Yeah, but this particular sinkhole um as we called it i don't necessarily know it was a sinkhole um, but it's a a large bowl that basically drops about 40 feet down and i would say it was probably maybe 80 to 90 yards across um all the way around so it had a pretty good size to it um you know and that that was a hard enough feature in there to make those deer go around that yeah i guess if it if it was a sinkhole, it was a really, really old sinkhole. Like to the point yeah, where there almost, was there was mature trees in the growing in the bottom of it and the, you know. Like the only way yeah. the only way that you thought it might have been a sinkhole was just because of the fact that it was so round, um and it was just such a steep drop around most of the rim of it. Yeah, I don't know what natural feature would cause that big of a hole in the middle of all of that unless it was a like you said, a really old sinkhole, because there were some some mature oak trees in the bottom that had probably been there for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was tough for me in a sense, choosing that spot because I knew there were spots that had better and fresher sign. I was like, do I really want to hunt the spot that doesn't have any sign? And And take a gamble on just the deer movement. Yeah. Hoping they're going to do what you think they do. Right. It was kind of a gamble. I mean, with that other spot, it was like, I was fairly certain that if a buck came through, I'd be able to, you know, he'd be coming within range if I, if I was set up on that right elevation, but it was like, you never, you never quite knew for sure. Right. Like, like we're saying with these, these Hills, it's like they're steep enough where a deer might want to travel a certain way, but they don't have to. Whereas above that ledge, they had to walk at a certain, a certain location. They weren't going to, you know, kind of, just walk right off the ledge type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I know once you set up there, you had a pretty eventful day for the most part. I mean, even from daylight on. Yeah, I mean, so when I was hanging that, that set before first light, I was trying to remember what, you know, trees I had marked out and stuff. Because I, when I took a cell phone video of that spot, I remember seeing, like, the tree I wanted to set up and I was trying to find it in the dark. And uh, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the right one. I was like, look. I would turn my headlamp off and then you could kind of see in the, the early morning glow, the tree, the canopies around you. So you'd be able to see, okay, there's a bigger tree over there, that type of thing. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the tree I want to be in. And so I start climbing and I'm probably eight feet off the ground and I can hear the unmistakable sound of a deer walking through and I have my headlamp off and, uh, I just turned around and looked and this, this deer just walked within 10 yards, I'm sure. And what I think it might've been was, I couldn't tell what it was for hundred percent, but I think it was probably a button buck just cruising through because it, I couldn't see antlers on it. Uh, but I could see the silhouette pretty clearly. And it was just kind of giving those, those soft grunts as it was walking. I bet it was a button buck that had recently gotten, you know, kicked out on his own and he was just, just walking kind of aimlessly, but he was, he was walking, you know, almost, it was so close to the tree. It was kind of like a nice confidence boost that I was like, okay. Like there was no sign here, but now at least I know that deer, you know, come through this area and he walked right down that point. Um, and then I could hear turkeys, uh, were clucking up in the tree or a putting alarm, alarm putt. So then, uh, I was like, okay, clearly there's at least a turkey like within five yards. And then as soon as it got light, then they just, the woods erupted. I mean, there was turkeys everywhere all around me. It was like, yeah, there was two in the tree that was right next to me. And then there was probably at least a half a dozen within 30 yards that were all roosted. So they took off every which way. And then there was a separate group of turkeys that was roosted out of sight that ended up just coming in and, and they were a group of maybe half a dozen or so. And they were all fighting. I got some footage of them just running around and kicking each other and doing the whole little dance. And then probably nine o'clock I had those four does Well, I guess a couple of them were fawns come in and they probably would have walked pretty close to right underneath the tree that I was in if I, if they wouldn't have seen me. And that was at a point too, where I didn't pay quite enough attention to the picking out the right tree 
to know that I'd be able to get high enough because there was a go really goofy split in that tree that pretty much forced me to sit about 14 feet off the ground. I would have liked to have been higher. Um, but then when those deer came in, I had the sun shine, just beaming off me, off the camera, off my face and everything. So, um, with that lead doe, when she spotted me, she was within 15 yards for sure. And I'm only 14 feet off the ground. So it didn't take much movement on my part for her to be able to pick up on me. Um, and then I was like, okay, I, I think I need to find a new tree. And luckily I found that one that was 20 yards away that, uh, was in a, a red Oak, but I was able to climb up a good 20 feet before really hitting that first branch. And, and at that point it kind of split off into a couple different trunks. So I was able to have pretty good cover from the ground looking up in that tree. Yeah, and just being able to make that move that, you know, you ultimately decided, you know, 14 feet off the ground here, not the best spot. I can bail out of this tree. I mean, you got out at probably like, what, 9 o'clock, somewhere in there, yep. and moved 20 yards and then climbed back up. Um, so, you know, just making that move in the middle of the rut, basically on that type of time frame is, is a pretty bold move. Most people just be like, ah, oh, well, I'll sit here at 14 feet for the rest of the day. Yeah, well, when you got eight or ten hours or whatever it ends up being to sit in the tree, it's like a 30-minute move. I think it took me, by the time I said I need to get down to the time I was fully set up in the other tree with the camera gear and everything, I think it was about an hour. So I lost about an hour making that move. But it was it yeah, ended up being it, worth it. Yeah, it paid off for you, obviously. If you watch the footage, um, you can see the tree where that deer stops where it kind of has that little branch with all the real bright colored, like reddish leaves. That was the tree I was in that morning. So <laughs> he pretty much walked just about right to the base of that tree. So it's likely that if I would have stayed in that tree, he may have spotted me as he came in. Um, right. And I might not have gotten a shot at him, but it seemed pretty clear that he could, he picked up my scent trail or something when he hit that spot. Cause he was about ready to walk into that shooting lane. And then he, you know, just stood there for a few seconds and he pretty much turned his direction 90 degrees and walked right on the top of that ledge. Yeah. I mean, you, you drew back as he was about to walk into the shooting lane. And I think I timed it after when I watched the video, I think it was like 54 seconds or something. You were at full draw. And I caught some of that out too. It was a little bit longer in, in real life. I cut out some of the time when he was just standing and not doing anything. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, and he saw something else too when, when he started walking toward me. Cause at one point he turned and started walking straight toward my tree when he almost got directly underneath me. I don't know if he could see the step on the tree or if he could see the, the, you know, the green bag that was at the base of the tree or if, if he was smelling something, but it was like, he, yeah, he almost looked like he could, he could tell something was up again. And then he, he kind of turned and went back to what he was doing. Yeah, there's a point in there where you almost think he's going to look up at you. Yeah. Like, he's got his head down, and then he kind of, like, was, raises his nose a little bit. And like, you can see the white around his, the white patch around his eye, and you're about to be like, uh-oh, it's up. But no, he just, you know, he lifts his head once or twice, and like you said, he makes a slight veer and kind of diverts just to the side of your tree. Yeah. And, and continued to walk towards you. And so it's like, was he really just, just kind of, like, vaguely curious that something might not be right here, or was that the fact that, any normal deer I would have been blown and it just so happened that he was, you know, so hormoned up during the rut that he just didn't care. Yeah. Be interesting to know. Wasn't alarming enough for him to bolt because he had other things on his mind. Right. Yeah. In an ideal world, what would be nice to do is I think number one, only access from directly on that middle of that primary ridge and just drop straight down to that tree and climb up which is what I did for the first tree. But obviously for the second tree, I had that, you know, other scent trail that I left on the ground going from tree A to tree B. Or what would be, I think, even more ideal, if you could make it work, would be like if you had a tree that was literally right on the edge of that ledge and you could somehow access from the bottom. And if you had a little route to climb up the, the ledge, some of those areas were a little bit, uh, you know, not quite vertical. You could find a way to access from the bottom and you could climb up into that tree, you'd basically leave zero scent trail on the ground. I think that would be your ideal case for being able yeah, to access absolutely. that spot. 
Yeah, even if you had to, you know, once you hit the rim, went in five or ten yards basically from the rim, you know, you're only leaving that five or ten yard scent trail from the rim in compared to, you know, from the primary ridge all the way down because it was about, what was it, about 40 or 50 yards off of the primary ridge towards that sinkhole? It was a little bit further because I, looking at the maps and drawing the line tool, I thought that I might be able to potentially see to that primary ridge that where that logging old logging road was, but I right. couldn't. Um, and it was, I think, realistically like 60 or 70 yards to the top of that primary ridge. Because I know when I went back in there, you know, I, I thought it was closer, I guess, and it really was a little bit farther than what I thought. I was thinking originally when you hunted it, it was only like 30 or 40 and then when I went back in there and scouted a little bit afterwards, you know, it seemed like it was a little farther. Yeah, like even if you had a rifle, I, I think it'd be tough to shoot to that, the center of that primary ridge. Yeah. So what about the shot? You know, we got in there to, what, 10, 12 <coughs> yards? Yeah. So <coughs> I'm assuming 10. I didn't, I didn't go out and pace it. But he was... He was uh, pretty much, it was about as steep of an angle shot, shot as you would want to take out of a tree stand. I'll say that much. Because uh, when we looked at the entry in the exit hole, it ended up entering, you know, obviously through the top of the, the shoulder and going in the top of the rib cage and it exited out in the armpit on the opposite side. So too much steeper and you'd be, you know, borderline not being able to hit both lungs. But um, I pretty much just... You know, I drew back and, and I just just kind of centered the vitals with that sight and just shot. And I remember thinking, like, right when I released the arrow, um, it seemed like it was a bit forward. And I wasn't intentionally leading the deer uh, by any means, even though he was walking and I didn't stop him. He was so close, I didn't feel like I needed to stop him. Um, so I just shot, and it seemed like the arrow was further forward, but then, you know, kind of once we actually found the deer and saw where the entry actually was, I think it was better than I initially thought. So I don't know if it was just the lighted knock playing tricks in my eyes or what, because that lighted knock did eject from the back of the arrow after the shot. Um, so it ended up being a good shot and the, the deer ran off and there wasn't a whole lot of blood. Um, I probably, I mean, like I said, when I first walked up on that deer, I just walked the general direction where I heard, thought I heard him crash. And just in that open hardwoods, I could see him laying up on the next ridge. I was like, I bet that's, I bet that's him. And I walked up and sure enough, that was him. Um, so on the second, I walked back to the tree and just grabbed all my stuff. And I walked back to the deer the second time. And that's when I had my headlamp on and I was actually trying to, you know, follow the blood trail. And there wasn't, there was like a speck here, speck there for probably the first 30 yards that that deer took off. And then he started to open up a little bit after that. But there wasn't much, and I think that for whatever reason, whenever I have an exit hole that's kind of in the armpit on the opposite side, I never get that much blood on the ground. It's the same thing with that doe that I shot through the heart. The exit hole was kind of in the armpit on the other side, and for whatever reason, it seems like it just kind of pulls up between like the leg, the leg and the, the rib cage, and there's always a ton of blood when I open up the deer to do the field dressing. So, But, I mean, it's, it's tough to complain. It's not like we had any issues finding him at all. No, I mean, he didn't, I mean, he may run, I don't know, maybe a hundred yards. Yeah, I think it was a hundred, I think it was a hundred yards according to the map and most of it was downhill. Yeah. And then once he got to the bottom, he made it, you know, five, 10 yards or two. Yeah. yeah. He didn't a make, leap or two up the other side. Yep. He didn't get very far once he had to go back up again. Yeah. So, you know, it was a, luckily we were able to get the, the four wheeler back in there a little ways to get him drug out. Um, you know, on the uphill side. So we just had a, you know, a relatively short downhill drag of, I don't know what it was, quarter mile maybe. Yeah, that that was pretty nice because <coughs> having to drag him back up that other, what, three quarters or close to a mile Yeah, through the creek bottom and then back uphill to where we had the car parked, that would have sucked. Although yeah, that would have been a long drag. Although that uh, that trick with the, the wild edge step, that was pretty, that was pretty handy. Was, yeah, it worked well on that deer. I was surprised how well it's like the handles angle themselves or those standoffs angle themselves like perfectly for a handhold for two guys. 
Yeah, so what we did was uh, we took a, a tree strap, a tether, a, a pull rope, anything basically, and wrapped it around the deer's neck and then used a wild edge step and clipped the carabiner into the bottom V of the wild edge step. And then that what what that does is that gives each guy uh, the standoff that touches on the top. Each guy is able to hold one of those basically. Uh, to drag the deer so it made it really nice so you're not trying to bump into each other trying to hold you know a smaller antlered sized deer where they're you know you're closer together or even a doe you know it makes it really easy to drag that deer compared to bumping into each other and tripping over each other because you're right there on top of each other yeah because i've done stuff like that with like the the little plastic handles with the rope that you can do kind of the same thing on and and they work all right but it's like you said, you're, you're right next to the guy. And it just seemed like for whatever reason, the angle, being able to kind of hold your hand vertical instead of horizontal with the standoffs versus one of those, you know, just straight handle drag ropes. It just seemed yeah. like it, it just seemed like it worked really well. Yeah. I mean, your hand was more at a natural angle because it, your hand's basically down and then you're, you know, grabbing it like that. So it's a real natural angle to hold on to. I think there's a short clip of it in your, in your yeah. video, if anybody's interested in and seeing what that's like, you can they can look at your video and see. Yeah, I sent a, a clip of that to Andrew. He thought it looked pretty cool. Yeah, it works well. And, you know, because I, I know when I were like, how are you going to drag this out? I was like, well, grab a wild edge step. And you were like looking at me like, okay, what is that going to do? <laughs> it's like, I, I get you tie the, the rope around the, the neck or like, what's your plan here? <laughs> yeah, you were like looking at me like, okay, what what are you, what's that going to do? But yeah, that worked pretty well. And um the nice thing too is like obviously you had all the stuff already there. It wasn't like you needed a drag rope. So it's one extra thing you got to carry when you you pack your stuff in. Assuming you're using wild edge steps and not climbing sticks. Right. Yeah, it's just it's a bonus if you use wild edge steps as a platform or as a a climbing method. It works really well. Or packing and quartering them out. I was prepared to be able to do that, but uh, yeah, we we didn't need was... to for for that much of a of a haul. Although if yeah. I would if I would have shot one in Minnesota, I would have I was prepared to to pack them out for sure. Yeah, if we if we wouldn't have been able to get the four wheeler to where we did, we probably would have quartered that deer up and packed that deer out. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it would have been a bigger deer, we probably would have done that anyways. Yeah, it wasn't too hard to drag him out. He wasn't wasn't super heavy. I know we made him look pretty big in the picture, but uh, <laughs> yeah. He was, yeah, we got a little misdirected by Onyx there for a little ways, but yeah, we kind of, we drug him down the wrong ridge, you know, Onyx, I guess the GPS wasn't working right. We drug him a little bit to the left. It was like, uh oh, we need to go back the other way. Yeah. It's, it's tough to tell. Cause we didn't, I didn't have like the, my, my calibrated compass on my phone. Isn't that great. Right. So it's like you, if you, uh. If you're using Onyx, right, you can have it so that you have north facing up and then you can just follow your blood breadcrumb trail to see what direction you're going. Right. Or you can have it to the mode where you're seeing, like, the live view of, of what direction you're facing. That always – I never usually use that mode just because I know my compass is not that great on my phone. So we're looking at the breadcrumb trail and we're like, okay, well, we need to angle, like, 15 degrees left or whatever. And then we ended up going, like, 90 degrees too far somehow. <laughs> so – we got it. Yeah. We only ended up probably adding 300 yards to our drag. Yeah. So, like, I like to use the the <clears throat> mode on Onyx that orients you, you know, to the direction you're looking. Only, like, when I cut a trail, like a deer trail, uh-huh. I'll turn and I'll look down that trail. So, I'll draw a line, basically. So, I'll look down that trail one way and I'll draw, like, a 30-foot line. And then I'll turn around and look the other way and draw another 30-foot line. And so I've got this 60-foot line that I'll mark as like a deer trail. So it kind of gives me a general direction of that deer trail as I'm using that. So when I run across one of those trails, I'll turn it to that, and I'll look down the trail, draw a mark, turn 180 degrees or wherever the trail goes to, and draw a mark. And that way it kind of gives me that direction of travel for deer on deer trails. Yeah, it also works pretty decent if you're trying to locate a turkey roost. If you can get him to gobble from one location, you draw that line, and then you move 100 yards or so, and you get him to gobble again, you can triangulate it pretty well. I never thought about that, but that is a good call. Yep. Yeah, so once we got it back to the house and started diving into it, we actually 
Garrett mentioned earlier, we found an abscess low in the brisket um, of that deer, and it, it it was massive. Well, I, the abscess wasn't necessarily massive, but the trauma from the abscess was, you know, up into the neck, and one whole side of the neck was basically a loss from this. Yeah, it was pretty much like from the, the mid-neck. I'd say in some of it almost was like, like it wasn't on the surface, but once you started peeling meat away, like you could see it. It was like bloodshot from there all the way down, like underneath the shoulder and even on like the ribs on that side. And we, you know, we never, there was not a, like a point of trauma. We didn't find anything like a broadhead or um, an antler mark or anything like that. So we don't know, you know, necessarily what caused it, but it was just interesting to see. And even more of a reason to remind people to wear your gloves. Garrett was making fun of me when I was helping him because I had gloves on. But, you know, I don't want to get any of that in any type of cut or anything on my hand. Well, I didn't use the gloves and I haven't gotten sick yet. <laughs> Other than the cold, your which is unrelated. <laughs> your time is coming. <laughs> yeah, but that worked pretty well because it gave me an excuse to go buy one of those 150-quart coolers from... Uh, from Walmart on the way back. Yeah. I'm meaning to get one of those for Colorado next year. So overall, what what was your impressions <clears throat> on hunting that area of Missouri? What would you do different? Um, you know, if you go next year or whatever, what are, are you going to do something similar? Are you going to look for, you know, maybe public land closer to agriculture? Or what are you going to try to do? I, I like the stuff we were in. Um <clears throat> It seemed like there was some of the sign that we saw. I think there was <clears throat> definitely bigger deer running around there than the one I shot. And I think that a couple of the areas that we found, I would potentially even hunt again. The one thing that I would maybe do is I would try and really locate a decent creek bottom location <clears throat> so that I could bounce back and forth a little bit easier between, you know, say a high spot and a low spot. And the high spot, maybe if we had a northerly wind, I'd hunt that same ledge spot. And maybe I'd hunt a different spot uh, on a southerly wind. And then maybe do the creek bottom once it's <clears throat> like first more, first light or something like that. Uh, so I wouldn't do a whole lot different. The only thing that I would say would make the biggest difference over anything would just be more time. You know, instead of a couple all-day sits, just like a week plus of, of anticipating doing week or all-day sits. And it was really maximizing the hours and maximizing the chance that something good's going to run through. I think that's the only the big thing for me that I think would make a positive impact. I mean, I know we were kind of against the clock with firearm season coming up <clears throat> on Saturday. Yep. You know, but to me, I I saw more deer movement later in the week. Um, you know, you shot your deer on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday I saw you know Thursday I saw a lot of good deer movement Friday I saw good deer movement and even the Saturday open day of firearm season um, there was a lot of good deer movement on mature bucks um, on Thursday probably within 45 minutes I had two three and a half year old deer and a two and a half year old deer cruise by um, so you know we we're probably just a little early, but like you said, you know, the way they do their seasons is you can bow hunt up to firearms and then you can't bow hunt again until after firearms. So we were kind of against the clock. So well, the other thing too is <clears throat> it was pretty warm when we were hunting in the beginning of the week and it cooled off toward the end of the week quite a bit, didn't it? Yeah. Yep. It cooled off quite a bit. We had a cold front come through. Um, and even some snow come in, which I'm sure really helped as well. Yeah. And if anything, it maybe helped the daytime movement. <clears throat> you would think the amount of sign that you guys saw, I would imagine would be there regardless. So it's probably likely that you're right. That <clears throat> end of the week, it was, it was kind of getting better overall. And I think the fact that you had cool, cooler weather kind of compounded that and really amped up that deer movement. So I would say like, if you did have a later firearms opener, that would definitely help. The other thing I would think would be, <clears throat> you know, I almost wouldn't be opposed to if there was like an earlier firearms open or even it's like you go down there instead of doing a bow hunt and you go back to that same area and do a rifle hunt and yeah. you just spend all that sits back there. Then you really up yeah, your which, odds with those that open hard ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that would be 
the probably the most opportune time, at least based off what we saw this year, to be back in there was during firearm season. <clears throat> you know, go back in there. I think the firearm season's uh, 14 days or 15 days. You know, pick a week in there and, and go hit it for firearm season. Yeah. <clears throat> Is there a lot of guys down there that do drives and things like that, or are most people stand no. hunters? Most everybody's a stand hunter or sit off the ground. Um, I know I drove through. There's a pretty good stretch of road that's pretty much all government for like 20-something miles. Um, I drove through there one evening, and I think I only counted like six cars on the whole 20-something mile drive. Um, So a lot of that does not get pressured a lot, Um, you know, I hear all these horror stories about public land and deer hunting and stuff. And that's just, you know, the area that I hunt in, like the, the one person that commented on your YouTube video said, you know, that's places where even Missouri hunters don't want to hunt, you know, so maybe it's because of that, you know, there's just not a whole lot of hunters that hunt that area. Yeah. I mean, I think there's overall just kind of a general stigma against big woods or monoculture habitat and that it's, it's harder to hunt. And I think that it was probably true to an extent because it is harder to pinpoint the deer movement, but it doesn't mean that it's bad hunting by any means or that there's no oh, big deer out there. They're just maybe harder to pinpoint or harder to get on. Yeah. No, I mean, I felt like if, you know, if we would have been there for, if we would have had two weeks in there, we, we could have killed a pretty good deer out of that area. Oh, I think so too. And, and if we would have been there and had more time, I probably would have passed up on that deer that I shot and I probably would have waited on something bigger. Cause I, I felt like there was probably bigger deer out there based on the sign we saw. Yeah, I mean, I passed uh, not too terribly far from where you hunted before you got there. We talked about it on the last one. I passed on a on a little, I mean, it was a decent deer, but he was cruising through. He was a little far, but, I mean, there's good deer in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a <clears throat> kind of a contrast for pressure, the day that I drove back and I hunted Minnesota the next day, I hunted a, a spot that was – it was like 90% landlocked. It was that area that I had assumed there wouldn't be a lot of guys in. Um, so I was assuming I'd be able to climb the hill from the bottom, just kind of park it on the side of the road and get up there and be able to get on some unpressured deer and, and rut action. But I ended up <clears throat> finding like, uh, there was definitely deer sign and I, I saw some deer, but the tough thing was there was buckthorn everywhere. So some of those leeward side hills, it's like you couldn't really set up on them that well because you couldn't see 40 yards. Uh, right. with the shotgun but then the other thing too was <clears throat> you know i was kind of bouncing around and scouting it as i was going and i got into a spot where it was i was a, over a mile from the truck as the crow flies over 700 feet elevation gain from where i had parked and i got into a spot that was close to kind of a secluded point um <clears throat> and found a couple of real hot scrapes and probably five or six just real nice rubs right on the, the top of that point where it kind of crested out. And I was saying, okay, well, this is probably pretty close to where, you know, a buck is betting. Um, <clears throat> I was like, I can't just pass up on sign like this. And probably 25, 30 minutes after I set up there, I had probably a dozen guys walk through <laughs> at like 50 yards away. And they're between, I'm not even joking, between the dozen guys, they probably had eight or nine deer. I didn't get an exact count, uh, but they were, they were dragging out a bunch of does, a bunch of what looked like, you know, one and a half and two and a half year old bucks. <laughs> and uh, what I assume must have happened is they're probably doing deer drives, given how thick it right. was. Um, they probably just had guys coming up from the top of the hills and pushing them down into the bottoms and having, you know, two or three standers just kind of shoot them as they go by, uh, which from what I hear is not all that uncommon down there. Um, so at that point I, I started getting a little frustrated and, you know, just, I said, I need to scout this better. Cause this was the stuff that, you know, I'd kind of, I knew that some of that area got pressured a ton and I was prepared to set up for that kind of stuff. Um, but I wasn't prepared for it in this location that I went to. I was like, I just need to, if I come back here, I need to scout it better. So that was, that kind of changed my, uh, my strategy there for sure. And even when like <clears throat> I walked out, the route that I took out took me through that same path that those guys had walked out on. And I found two more deer that were dead and gutted out that they had just left, which I'm assuming given the benefit of the doubt that they were coming back and making a second trip for. Right. Um, Cause they were gutted. I don't know why they would have gutted deer that 
um, they're not going right, to take out. Right. So I'm assuming that's what they're doing. Uh, but the one was a doe and one was like a – it was an eight-pointer, so it was a legal buck, but it was it was very clearly a, a one-and-a-half, I would have said. Um, so – but, I mean, yeah, there's definitely down there the deer sign. There's some there's some big bucks down there for sure. Um, you just got to get on them. You got to figure out a way to hunt them with all that pressure. It's definitely a different world than what the stuff we had hunted in Missouri. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know – Leading up to that week before firearm season in Missouri, there's almost no pressure bow hunting wise. Um, you know, when you get into that firearm seasons, when you might get some pressure, but I don't think I've ever experienced a, a firearms hunt in Missouri where I had a dozen people walk by me. I probably don't even know that I've ever had a season where I had two people walk by me. Yeah. And then on the way out, I think I probably counted five or six more other people that were kind of hunting on their own. Man. That's madness. And, and the crazy thing was, though, I was I was still bumping. Like, on the way back, I was like, I'm just going back to the truck. I'm going to do some more scouting. I'm going to figure this out. And uh, I was still bumping deer occasionally. There was still deer out, like plenty of deer. There's a lot of deer sign hmm. and stuff. It's thick enough that you can't always see them when you bump them. And it's just like, man, the deer population down here, to be able to sustain this kind of harvest during the rut year after year that they have down here, it's, it must be pretty remarkable, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean that much pressure and that many deer being taken, like I said, it's got to be, it's got to be pretty good. They got to have pretty good recruitment. Yeah, so I think what um, what I'm probably gonna do next spring, I have a, a couple of friends up here that are gonna probably be in on this too. We're gonna go down there, make a scouting trip, and instead of trying to to find the rut uh, funnels and things like that, we're just gonna try and scout some escape routes. You know, from yeah. where you got access that's high and the deer are going to get pushed low and just figure out where to set up on them. So that's going to be a, a good plan for down there if it gets to that point. Ideally, I'd like to shoot something in early season. <laughs> get done so you don't have to deal with all that. Right, exactly. Man, yeah, that's no doubt. So then what's next for you? Are you pretty much done for the season now? Now that you're back um, to Utah? No, I've my deer and elk tag, I think deer tag goes out like the end of this month. Elk tag runs into December. I think mid-December, December 10th time frame, I'm actually going to head to Virginia where we're going to go to the eastern shore and chase Sika deer, or actually they're an elk species, uh, which that's all done driving basically. So I think I'm going to fly back out there for three or four days and hunt with those guys and, and chase some sika deer around. Nice. How big are those things dressed? Uh, a big one is like 52 pounds. <laughs> An average one's like 33, somewhere in there. So you see one so, that looks like a fawn, you're doing pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing to drag two out at once and be like, all right, yeah, this is not so bad. Interesting. That sounds like fun. Yeah. What about you? Um, so basically, I mean, at this point you look at my freezer, it's, it's pretty full. Um, I don't think we have any issues venison wise. So what I'm pretty much doing now is I have some trail cameras up that I've had up for most of the fall in some of my Wisconsin areas. And I think I might put out a couple more in some new areas. And I think I'm just going to kind of monitor them periodically. Um, and one, you know, obviously I'll learn more for next year. But two, if I see something that's really big and I think it might be killable, I'll probably start making some moves late season. Um, but I don't really have to from a meat perspective, I guess. Right. So we'll, we'll kind of play it by ear. So I'm not, I'm not like for sure hanging it up right now, but you know, it's probably going to take something, something nice to, to get me to go back out. Versus, you know, we already got. Um, guys are ice fishing already here in minnesota we've got holy smokes yeah to the, to the northern part of the state i got some buddies that live up by duluth that are already posting pictures of ice fishing we don't have quite enough to walk on down here yet it's madness yeah but i, mean, I was walking on the swamp last weekend when i came back home and it was it was you know a little sketchy but it was supporting my weight hopefully i can get on some ice fishing this year so far it's <laughs> Out here in Utah, it's not looking so good right now, but it's been relatively warm out here so far. So, yeah. Well, if you ever want to 
catch some walleyes or pike. Minnesota is a pretty good place to, to fly into. May have to. Yeah. But that'll do it for this episode. As always, please make sure to leave the podcast network or review on iTunes. Follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you stream your podcast episodes. Bobby and I are both using Arrow Hunter tree saddles. Whether you're already a hardcore mobile hunter, toting around a lightweight stand and sticks and miles in search of overlooked spots, or whether you're just looking to reduce weight for your current setup, a saddle can be a great option. You can learn more about Arrow Hunter saddles at arrowhunter.us. Thanks for listening.